Chengdu is a shower segment. Leave yourself plenty of time to nominate. Don't do it at the last minute because several people have reported Chengdu not actually finding their memberships or them not being sure what email they're registered or under and it's going to take them a while to sort out that sort of issue. And although the nominating website is completely fine, it's not quite as you are used to. So it might take you a little bit longer. So do not leave it till the very last minute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 82nd episode of Octothorpe. This episode is coming to you on the 27th of April 2023, and I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Ms. Batty. This episode is going to be an episode about the Hugo Awards, given that the nomination deadline is coming up at the end of April. So as this drops, you will have a few days to get your ducks in a row. So we're going to discuss what we're nominating for Hugos that we haven't already discussed in episode 77. And if you didn't listen to that, go back and listen to it. It was probably good. For Lodestar, I'm nominating Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. It's really good. I am nominating um, The Golden Enclaves, which is the final book of the Golden Enclave series, so that will end up on my ballot twice. And I'm also nominating Unraveler by Francis Harding, which just won the BSFA Award for Younger Readers. And it's basically another great Francis Harding book. And at this point, I'm just sort of like ranking within a bunch of excellent books as to which is my favourite Francis Harding novel. So yeah, I think you should go and read this one and nominate that one as well. I am also nominating Unraveler, which I liked less than A Face Like Glass and more than The Diving One. I thought this was pretty good, but I don't think... I am disinclined to nominate it for novel because, as so often with um, young adult fiction, I find I make allowances for the fact that it's young adult fiction and that parts of the plot feel to me to be um, incredibly transparent to an adult reader who is reading with... um, with with the I I really really liked the first half of the book and then I thought it kind of went and told a very ordinary story for the second half of the book but I did really really like the first half so you know definitely fine for Lodestar where I'm not expecting novels to do quite so much we're going to very quickly talk about what we're nominating in the fan categories uh so I'll be nominating Hugo Girl who is an excellent fan cast and who gave us a very nice shout out when they were talking about Hugo nominated things. Um, so yes, go listen to them, go nominate them. They are great. We love you, Hugo girl. Yay, transatlantic besties. Transatlantic besties. I am going to be nominating the FANAC series of fan history Zooms. Um, I went to one of these yesterday. It was very good, as indeed they all are. And they're all on YouTube, which is why they're eligible for best fan cast, because as we know, booktube which this isn't is a fan cast thing they're very very good and i recommend you check them out and we'll have a link in the show notes and last night somebody said loudly i'm so glad to have something to nominate in this category and i was sitting there in the audience feeling very droopy <laughs> at that point though i think quite a lot of people who like the fanac fan history zooms do also like octothorpe so shout out to all of those people and i will also be nominating Ian Clark and Hispania Sheriff and Alison Scott for Best Fan Artist. Oh, thank you very much. And Sue Mason. Um, so for an example of uh, Hispania and 
um, Alison and Sue's fan art. You can check out the Octothorpe cover art from last year. And uh, Ian hasn't done us any uh, cover art. And now I'm saying it out loud, that seems like something we should probably fix. Yeah, no, I'm sure if we asked nicely, he'd do us one, don't you think? That's right. Ian, if you're listening, <laughs> we'll, we'll be in touch. Yes. Yeah, this would be embarrassing when he's not listening. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, I will also be nominating Sarah Felix in this category, whose art I continue to like very much. But And then it's on to best semi-prosine. Uh, Uncanny probably is going to be on that ballot. Uh, Strange Horizons, nominate Strange Horizons. They're great. Yeah, has Strange Horizons ever won? Nope. Be good if they did at some point. Huge, huge sore point. Should they win? They've been close many times, is the thing. They're usually second. Very rarely they're third. Yeah, Uncanny's very good, though. Yeah. So I'll definitely nominate those two. So was Locus. And Fire. Fire, yeah, very good. Yes, Fire are good. Um... Then there's um, the best editor categories, and no one ever knows what's nominating those because no one understands what they're for. So then it's the dramatic presentation categories. Let's talk about best dramatic presentation long form. I think I've probably seen the most off this list, so I think I should go last. I have seen very few, actually. I seem to have accidentally watched no films this year. Well, I mean, uh, that's not true. I've not seen no films, but there are some notable omissions, like I have not watch black panther wakanda forever i have not watched the batman because i have no intention of watching the batman it's too long oh yeah no me, me neither <laughs> there's, there's a, a bunch of potential nominees i have not seen and what i've seen mostly are the tv shows and we did to some extent discuss those when we discussed bdp uh short form but you know rather than go for the super obvious choice that everyone's going to pick i am in fact going to pick uh turning red uh, see that to me is a super obvious choice everyone's got to pick because that is a great movie 10 out of 10 movie i mean i think it is super obvious choice but i do not think it is the number one choice is it i rather liked it i'm going to watch turning red in time for the nominations because i think that's such a great pick and i have not seen it i've been meaning to see it for ages it's very good so i really like it the director directed uh bow which is a very cute pixar short film which i'm pretty sure made me cry in under five minutes yeah uh, so Turning Red, which is about uh, May, a teenager who lives in Toronto with her parents. And um, basically she discovers that um, what happens during uh, puberty to her family is that she turns into a giant red panda. It's great. Yeah. And basically she gets it. It's, it's just great. She turns into this incredibly cute, cuddly red panda. And it's all about kind of familiar relationships and family responsibility and diaspora you know diaspora life and it feels very kind of also quite specifically set in toronto and in the kind of chinese diaspora in toronto i just it's just it's really good and i think i think it ends really nicely as well and just the hilarity of this girl like and one thing pixar does really well is kind of like the comedy of using the animation comedy of like making these hilarious figures i'm thinking of like Baymax in Big Hero 6, which I know is not strictly Pixar, but, you know, kind of these just big cuddly figures or like um, Sully in Monsters, Inc. But just this kind of great big red panda trying to hide under the bed and hide behind things is just a really cute visual comedy. And it was satisfying. And it, yeah, it seems to have like gone out in cinemas briefly and then gone away again. And then been I watched it on uh, Disney Plus and I really enjoyed it. Do you want to 
do all the ones you've seen all at once, Liz, and then Alison can add on the ones she's seen that you didn't mention. The question is, am I going out in left field and talking about video games since we don't have a video game category yet? Because basically... No, you're not. No, not allowed to do that. Okay. But are you actually thinking of nominating some games because you can't, because you don't have a category for them? Yeah, because I always used to do this in Best Dramatic Presentation long form. I would always put a video game in and of course it would never get more than a handful of votes and never get anywhere. But I did it kind of in, in protest for the fact there was nowhere better to put them. Yeah, so so I will say here that if a game's a proper game, it isn't a dramatic presentation. But I understand that this is a very specialist view to me. I believe we have had this argument before, multiple times. Yeah, but it's a bit like this uh, Lukienko thing. I do have to say it every time. I am not going to have the argument with you again because I've had this argument previously about why you're wrong. So I'm just going to continue talking about maybe dramatic presentations of the more traditional format. Uh, I mean, so the obvious one that I mean, I presume is going to win and possibly win, you know, a million Oscars as well is everything everywhere all at once. Yup. You know, the fantastic tale of um, another another story actually very much about kind of Chinese immigrant families, uh, a lot like Tenny Red. But yeah, this again is about... Um, but quite different, I think. I think quite different. I mean, quite different in, in tone, but they do have some kind of similar i would say they have some similar themes maybe if you watch turning red although one is you know about more aimed at a you know child audience and involves a giant panda and i don't recall there being any giant pandas in everything everywhere all at once even though there are you know rocks and googly eyes and and so on bound to be a giant panda somewhere there's a raccoon there's probably one somewhere there's a raccoon the raccoon so yes um if, if you haven't seen everything everywhere all at once then turn off the podcast and go and watch everything everywhere all at once and of course it's not a it's not a giant panda in turning red is it it's it's a giant red panda. It's a giant red panda, yeah. Octothorpe, nitpick corner. Well, I mean... Yeah. But I think it's quite an important nitpick because, you know, giant pandas all get all the love and red pandas don't really get that much love. And um, and do you want me to draw you all as red pandas, this issue? I mean, yes. Uh, you can draw the red pandas or you can draw us all as rocks with googly eyes. That would also be acceptable and possibly easier. But yes, everything everywhere all at once... It's uh, a great film about with Michelle Yeoh as uh, essentially um, a middle-aged uh, Chinese immigrant woman who gets swept up in an adventure through the multiverse, and it's it's quite hard to describe beyond that because it's just really good and it's got the everything bagel. So just go and watch it. Basically, I'm not going to describe it any further. Fair. Although I could, I will put a link in the show notes to a podcast with the the Daniels who wrote and directed it, which I found pretty interesting if you want to hear more about how it came about and their other work. So what else on this list have I seen? I mean, I think we kind of covered that there are a few TV shows that I might nominate as a series. The ones I'm thinking of is I have seen, there is For All Mankind Season 3, Severance Season 1. I'm not sure there's any other TV shows I would consider nominating. And also I haven't seen quite a few of them. Andor? Oh, Andor, yes. So again, the question is like, just which one do I put it in? But I did think Andor had some very good individual episodes, so I'm up with those in. So I guess in terms of films, the other one I was thinking about is possibly Don't Worry Darling. Widely, I think, thought of as not very good at both the box office and with the critics, but I thought I enjoyed it. I watched it uh, with John in person. Yes. Wow. Uh, It's essentially got Florence Pugh as uh, a 50s housewife in a glamorous utopia where every day the husbands go off to work and... All the housewives are kind of left, um, you know, to 
to live this 50s life but it's incredibly unsettling from the start like you know something is going on and it's just got this very unsettling tone right from the start of knowing that something is going on and not being able to figure out exactly what is going on well so like WandaVision then um no because it's Mm, more unsettling than WandaVision because in WandaVision I think Wanda knows something's weird and in this Florence Pugh doesn't and I think that makes it it definitely feels more unsettling than WandaVision. Yeah, it's got much more of a horror tone as well because you're like, you know, these are everyday people rather than, you know, a superpowered woman. And so then you're like, what is going on? And it basically uses the idea. It's a very, uh, maybe not original idea that, you know, you were trapped as a 1950s housewife, but is she literally trapped as a 1950s housewife and how? Um, when I will say, is it similar to why always say about moon which is although i don't think moon is like astonishingly original in terms of its idea it is astonishingly original in terms of having that idea in a movie and i think don't worry darling is similar where Mm -hmm. i think i've seen similar concepts but i don't think i've ever seen it in a mainstream movie directed by a woman before which kind of is interesting uh it's also interesting because chris pine is amazing in it and i thought harry styles was very good initially i thought harry styles was bad and then i understood what role he was playing and i was like oh no he's actually smashed it uh which is always nice when the reveal at the end of the film makes it clear what an actor is doing (laughs) and you're like oh and i will say it was not well received by critics it got 38 percent on rotten tomatoes but it has an audience score of 74 percent, which is quite the divide and i do wonder whether people went into it thinking that it wasn't sf and then like especially the critics went into it expecting something very different and came out disappointed but i think as an sf film it's quite good i enjoyed it uh i would watch it again yeah so i think i might also nominate that i i think most in fact almost all science fiction tv and movies uses tropes that we've previously seen in books or or graphic novels and i i tend not to rate to mark them down for that because i'm kind of like it would be a bit would be a bit of a stretch to do a completely original science fiction concept as a movie given the budget that movies tend to need to make them work um you know so so i i i don't really mind so having said that everything everywhere all at once which is on my list is um is pretty original yeah and that's one of the good things about it i mean i think i don't i don't want to say too much because i think if i dig deeply into where i think don't worry darling may have been done on film before then i will start you know giving away some of the interesting things about don't worry darling yeah no i i I need to watch this one as well. Apparently, I have two to-do lists. What 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 service is it on? I don't know. We rented it off Amazon. Um, it's now on HBO Go, but I don't think you can get HBO Go. So it may be on like Now TV films or something. Not Now TV. You know what I mean? Now TV, but has movies. But yeah, and I, I think it does have what I felt was a sort of particularly... It felt like particularly 2020s spin on it. And I won't say any more than that. Yes, I'd agree with that. I think I, what I would say is even when I thought it wasn't, you know, even though I, I think it is not amazing throughout, maybe has some rough edges, it did get me thinking more than a lot of the stuff I have seen this year. So I think that is my that is my initial set. Um, and you should go now, go through things you might be nominating. And I might go, oh, yeah, I watched that and forgot. So it was Everything Everywhere All at Once, Don't Worry Darling, and Turning Red. Yes. I want to discuss a few movies. So first thing, I'm not putting any Marvel movies in my nominations. I thought all three of the Marvel movies that came out, Black Panther, Doctor Strange and Thor, 
were solid, but I don't think any of them deserved to win. Hugo, I think Wakanda Forever will make it onto the nominations list because of what it represents. And um, it's very touching in some ways, but I didn't think it really worked for me as a film. It worked as a tribute, but not as a story. I will be nominating Prey, probably. Uh, Prey was very good. I've talked about it on the pod previously, so I will not talk about it again. And I will probably nominate Nope, uh, which is the Jordan Peele movie. Uh, I love Jordan Peele. I think Nope is the weakest of his three movies, but you're talking like four out of five instead of five out of five. So like, it's tricky. Uh, And basically, I just like that there's intelligent original horror on the big screen. I won't be nominating Neptune Frost. I went to see that. Neil Harrison, friend of the podcast, was like, oh, I don't work on Wednesdays. We should go to the cinema on a Wednesday afternoon and see it. So me and Hispania took time off and then Neil flaked and then we had to watch Neptune Frost, which is not good. So, you know, that was a fun afternoon. Uh, Do you think your your views of this film might have been coloured in some way by being stood up? I went to see it excited about the idea of an original sci-fi movie that was like quite small and like, and I was not it was not good not one over yeah okay no uh might nominate men i enjoyed men by alex garland quite a lot says quite a lot about how awful men are which i like turns out we're really awful and it made me it made me think that in a way that i don't i know it intellectually but it really gave me an insight into how scary men are and also Having watched Men and having watched Ex Machina, anyone who watches an Alex Garland film is like, I wonder what Alex Garland thinks about gender. I wonder if he's a misogynist. No! What? Are you paying attention? He clearly thinks men are awful. Anyway, the men are not the good guys in his films, guys. Like, spoiler alert, the men are the baddies. Except in Dread. But I don't think he's really talking about gender as much in Dread. He's talking about kick-ass judges and their morally questionable decision-making. And that's oh, and I also yesterday I watched Vespa. Vespa is interesting. It's a Lithuanian science fiction film. It is currently on Netflix in the UK. It was probably about twenty minutes too long. It is very downbeat and it is quite disgusting in places. But it was I did enjoy it very much. I thought I thought it was really good and real nice dystopian movie. So so disgusting is that gory or like poo or vomit or. It's got a lot of blood in places, but it's in a world where humanity tried to respond to climate change with genetic engineering, and that went about as well as you might expect. And like everyone left his hold up in citadels, except for the poor who aren't. So far, so like you know, this is a trope that's been done before. But like the design is just amazing because like right at the beginning of the movie, you see a tree breathing, and it's like, oh yeah, of course, if you go far enough down that road, you get trees that breathe. It's just so gross. You just see this tree breathing. You're like, oh, no, no, that is not. No, don't like. Uh, and there's like a lot of genetic technology. Uh, and it's just, yeah, it's very good, but it's very gross. But it's very good. Uh, I did I did like that a lot. Okay, so it's actually hitting up that things that make people go, ooh, this is squicky. Yeah, I think so. I think it's doing it on. And I think it does it well and on purpose. Those are my picks. So men with a question mark and prey and Vespa are also like potentials as well as nope. They are all films I have heard of but not watched. I, I mean, Prey and Nope are definitely high on my list of things to get through before um, the nomination period ends. So I will try and get to those. And men as well, actually. <laughs> Mentioned everything I've seen, but this may need to go in an interjection 
Before we stop talking about Don't Worry Darling, which I haven't seen but would like to, I need to mention something about Florence Pugh that I discovered since we last recorded, which is that Florence Pugh has a party trick. And it turns out that her party trick, she's like, I don't know what it's called, but it's just the thing that you can do. And her party trick is the astral pole, um, which um, long time readers may know is a science fiction thing um, from the 70s. I think the 70s or the early 80s in British fandom, where you step over a pole in increasingly implausible ways and don't take your hands off the pole. We will put a link to Florence Pugh doing the astral pole very competently um, in the show notes, if I can find it again. And um, yeah, if you could do the astral pole, please send video. Um, I could do the astral pole when I was about 20, but it's been a while. Can't now. I could never do the astral pole. I did when I was introduced to it in 2005 at the Worldcon. I needed the astral shark, which is where instead of using a pole, you use an inflatable shark, which is quite bendy. Um, and that is how I managed to do it. But now I suspect I could not even do the astral shark. Maybe we can have a 2024 uh, Glasgow Worldcon rerun of this event in which people who could do the astral pole in 2005 try it again and uh, all put their backs out. Yay! Otherwise, the only other thing I was going to mention was that we haven't mentioned the TV shows we're going because I am going to put Andor and Severance for sure on my um, long form list, as well as having a second bite of the cherry in short form, unless um, some Hugo's rule lawyer tells me that's a terrible idea. Uh, you put Russian Doll season two in the show notes, uh, and I would describe it as aggressively fine. <laughs> so Russian Doll season one was fantastic, but I didn't feel like it needed anything more going on and i couldn't see how russian doll season two would actually add anything to it so it's not that i don't intend to watch it i do intend to watch it at some point but it just seemed like it was not likely to be as exciting i think season two could have been great if they'd done it well it doesn't quite come together it's doing too many different things in the absence of a best game hugo i have for some years been putting video games into best dramatic presentation long form on the grounds they don't fit anywhere else and i like nominating video games for things and we have now passed the idea of best game Hugo, but not ratified it. And so I'm going to continue this tradition for one more year, probably by putting Horizon Forbidden West on best dramatic presentation long form, because it's great. Fair. It is great. I am about halfway through the plot and I've been playing for 80 hours. Uh, I've been taking my sweet time. Yeah. Is it like... To finish the first one, shouldn't I? Uh, you should. I think you can get the second one now. I think it's free on one of the PlayStation Plus tiers, but don't ask me to explain different PlayStation Plus tiers. It's good. It's not quite as good as the first one, but I think it would still be worthy of a Hugo, and so I will nominate it and it will not go anywhere, but that's fine. I mean, I feel like Horizon is now one of the best things never to have won a Hugo. Uh, hot take. I mean, there will be DLC in 2023, right? That will be, in theory, eligible for Hugo in 2024. The catch is that the DLC is only for PlayStation 5, so... Well, and also the other catch is that it will be going up against um, Breath of the Wild 2, right? Oh, the new Zelda, yeah. Which should not win a Hugo, uh, but which probably will. I mean, it might be great. They might have undone all of the things that were wrong with Breath of the Wild uh, and made a real great sequel, but I suspect not. We'll see. I mean, I love Zelda, um, but I kind of think that it's not really exciting science fiction in the way that Horizon is. Do you fight any robot dinosaurs in Zelda? It really depends on your definition of robot and your definition of dinosaur. <laughs> oh, see, now I'm more interested in it. 
generic. It's just generic fantasy. All, all of the Zelda stuff is generic fantasy twaddle, right? The the backstory is not what you're playing this game for. Oh yeah. Well, one of the really annoying things about Breath of the Wild is that it really wanted you to care about like Zelda's mental state, and I'm like, I've never cared about any of the characters in this franchise, guys. That is not why I come to a Zelda game. I come for the intricate dungeons, of which there were none. Four fine and 120 quite poor yeah for me breath of the wild is a real triumph of quantity over quality there was lots to do most of it was fine which i didn't enjoy um we can i mean i enjoyed it fine forbidden west into best related work so that's a thing that people can do nope right okay so the official the official octothorpe uh perspective is you should nominate horizon forbidden west in every category and let the admin decide which one it should have gone in Actually, probably not short story, novelette, or novella, because it probably does have more than 40,000 words in it. I, I am a purist, but I think when Best Related Work says it should be notable for things other than the fictional text, I feel I should not nominate fictional texts. Hang on. Oh, no. Horizon Zero Dawn is notable for, or Horizon Forbidden is notable for robot dinosaurs, right? And they are not textual robot dinosaurs. If it didn't have robot dinosaurs, you wouldn't care about the text as much. What, they're metatextual dinosaurs or something? They're literal dinosaurs. <laughs> no, they're not. They're like, they're like in-your-face dinosaurs. It's not the text. But are you interpreting text to mean only text on a page here, Alison? Oh, no. Um, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is part of the text. Are you being very purist on your definition of text? You see? The text is, you know, the work, and I would say that the uh, <clears throat> fictional dinosaurs are part of the fictional text. Mm, I think I agree with uh, Liz here, Alison, I'm afraid. Yeah, no, she, Liz is right. I'm wrong. Fine. Boo. Aha, put that in the soundboard. Boo, boo, boo. I'm just glad that the title of the episode is going to be Metatextual Dinosaurs. <laughs> and no one is going to understand. They're going to think it's one thing from the title and it will be something totally different. And then it's best related work. I'm not sure I've read any related works this year. I know that the um, Terry Pratchett biography by Rob Wilkins is in this category. Oh, no, shoot, I have. Um, uh, Management Lessons from Westeros by Fiona Moore. You should all nominate that. Nominate it for best related work. Management Lessons from Game of Thrones is its proper title. And we have been meaning to have this as a pick for ages, but haven't actually managed to do it. So um, it's very, very good, very funny, and also quite illuminating. And it's now her it's now her um, thing. So she's starting to do Management Lessons from Star Wars and things of this kind. So I'm very much hoping we're going to see a lot more of this sort of thing. Yeah. I am hype for that. And we'll be nominating that when it comes out too. I mean, assuming it's good, but I can't imagine it won't be good. So I don't think there's much of a risk. The Rob Wilkins book and the Fiona Moore book are both things you could consider nominating. I've not read the um, Rob Wilkins biography of Terry Pratchett, but everyone I know who has read it says it was fantastic. So uh, I'm starting the nomination campaign now for next year. Next year, All These Worlds, Reviews and Essays by Neil Harrison uh, needs to be on that ballot, listeners. Uh, so buy it and read it now so you can nominate it so that it's on the ballot in Glasgow so that Neil can win. We've got a plan and we're doing it. Claire has mentioned in this space um, the Peter Nichols collection, Genre Fiction of the Roaring Years, which I think I had as a pick on Octothorpe and which I also enjoyed very much. And there are other books in Langford's series of um, 
fan history books that you might want to think about nominating in this category. None of them have any chance of winning, I don't think. But, you know, they're good books. They're all good books, Brent. They're not all good books, but most of them are good books. Yes, Alison picked that on episode 71, Just Nearly Froze to Death, if you want to hear more about her thoughts on it there. Have you got any best related um, things, Liz? I don't think I have. I was looking at, because um, obviously like individual essays and things are, would be eligible. Yeah. Uh, but the Strange Horizons criticism uh, issue that I liked so much is actually 2023. So that will be for next year's ballot. And I don't think I read a lot of non-fiction related science fiction that isn't, you know, book reviews and essays and so on in online sources, most of which are covered by the semi-prozines. So. Yeah. So then we go to best graphic story or comic. I've really dropped out here. I mean, I used to read quite a lot of comics and I've ended up reading basically no comics. So I don't actually have anything to put in this category. I'm not even up to date with kind of, you know, perennial, what I'd say perennial Hugo favourites like Monstrous and so on. Yeah. I find that my taste in this category is quite different from the Hugo electorate more generally. I mean, I'll probably look through my Marvel Unlimited and work out uh, what I want to nominate, but I strongly suspect uh, that it will not get on the ballot. If I was going to advocate for one thing from Marvel Unlimited that I've read, it would be the most recent run of Moon Knight, which I thought was really, really excellent uh, as a comic. I would I would go for that one, which I believe is volume nine, which I believe does extend into it started in 2021. But it, I believe there is a volume in 2022 because it has been ongoing and it has won the Golden Issue Award for best ongoing comic. So, yeah, I'm not the only one who liked it, listeners. Oh, and um, Moon Knight Black, White and Blood number one was in uh, May 2022. So, so, yes, I'll be nominating some Moon Knight. But, yeah, I don't think it'll be on the ballot. So... Any comics, Alison? Um, no. And then it's best series. So, Liz, you have a couple of picks here, I think. I do have a couple of picks of best series, um, which cross over as well with my picks in best novel and best in Lodestar Awards, which is I'm going to pick Robert Jackson Bennett's Foundryside trilogy, which I think was exceptionally good. The last book, Locklands, was published last year. If you like sort of secondary world fantasy series, then why haven't you picked it up already? I will also be picking Naomi Novik's Golden Enclave series, where the first one, Scholar Manson, was uh, nominated for the Lodestar before. Um, but I think the second and third books are actually better than the first one and do open out the world in a way I enjoyed. I mean, I've got some quibbles about them, but I think they're worthy of going in best series. I'm going to also nominate probably The Cemeteries of Amalo by Catherine Addison, which is her series of sort of um, murder mysteries in the goblin emperor universe and the work for that would be good grief of stones that was published this year i don't think they're the best books ever but i do find them kind of always pleasant and pleasantly fun to read so they may go in there i did also notice that uh, cora bullet has pointed out that elric is eligible for best series this year if anyone is feeling super <laughs> retro well has Morcott published a new elric novel because that would be awesome Apparently, he has published a new Elric something. I'm just looking it up to see if it is a novel or a collection of short stories or a short piece or whatever. But yes, apparently there was new Elric in 2022. And so you can nominate the whole of Elric if you really want to. I mean, I've read the first one, but not however many other novels there are in the series. The one I will be nominating for best series is the Children of Time, Children of Ruin, Children of Memory trilogy by N. Tchaikovsky which 
is very good and uh, I think would be a worthy winner of the best series, Hugo. I believe Tchaikovsky's other, um, the um, Final Architecture series, is also eligible. No, because there's only been two out so far and the third one is 2023. Ah, so nominate that one next year, listeners. That one be next year. But, I mean, thinking about it, I think the Children of Time series may also be eligible next year because the third book is out 2023 in the US. So that's going to be very complicated. I am. Well, don't split the Tchaikovsky vote next year, guys. Nominate them both. I want to fly the plaid for some other British series. I think that Fractured Europe by Dave Hutchison is um, eligible because although the fifth book that came out in 2022 is kind of sideways to the other four, it's still set in the same universe. And I think that counts for the purposes of best series. And I also want to shout out the Fallow Sisters series by Liz Williams, which is the one that starts with Comet Weather um, and the Green Man series by Juliet McKenna, both of which are eligible and both of which contain books that I have enjoyed very much indeed, though, as always with series, I've never read the whole series, not for donkey's ears afterwards. You know what it's like. But um, they're both they have both got great books in them. Retrospectively realise that given that Alistair Reynolds published a new Revelation Space novel in 2021, even though I didn't really like it, it would have been eligible as a series as a whole, and I do like the series as a whole. However, he wrote another one that'll be coming out in 2023 so I can have this whole conversation again next year. Yeah, we should have this conversation at more length next year. We should make a plan earlier in the year, yeah? All right, then it's on to short stories. Alison, how's your short story reading been this year? <laughs> so 2023 has been a thing so far. So normally I do a pile of short story reading in the first couple of months of the year. Well, you know, a dozen or so. Haven't done any. So if you've ever hankered after an episode of Octothorpe where John and Liz do it as a two-hander and I don't say a word, the next 20 minutes or so for you. Moving to short stories. My first short story is a very short story, clocking in at under 1,500 words by Margaret Dunlop in Uncanny 45. I really like it. It's um, it's fantasy. It's kind of in a similar world to Toy Story uh, in that toys are uh, sentient beings. And it's just, yeah, it's just very, um, I just found it very poignant and um, I really liked it. It was very simple, but it was very effective. It does not take long to read. As my first story, links to all these short stories are in the show notes. Okay, so my first short story is... I've chosen Critical Mass by Peter Watts from Lightspeed magazine, which is about uh, Leo Gregory, who's kind of a, a future architect who finds his studio vandalised. And it's partly about trying to work out, you know, who vandalised his studio, but partly about all these artworks of his that are being vandalised around the world. And, um, you know, it's said in this kind of, I don't know, what feels like now a sort of fairly standard near future dystopia of biohackers gen engineering things and refugees and and climate change but i kind of liked how that was sort of the background thing and what i actually what i really liked about it is i read a lot of short stories that didn't actually go anywhere and they don't have an ending and this one feels like it has an actual ending so this one's going on my ballot nice on the subject of stories that had an ending is transference by vivian shaw 
So uh, this was in Uncanny 49. I really love this story. It might be my favorite of the four that I am going to nominate. Um, it is a story about magical tattoos, which are a subject I've always been fascinated by, and I'm not really sure why, but like I've always been always been completely entranced by the idea of kind of magic that works through tattoos, which I think is why I like the Painted Man series quite so much. Um and yeah, it's just amazing. And I then discovered that Vivian Shaw is married to Arcady Martin, and uh, I am very jealous of the amount of story writing prowess that exists in that partnership. My second and third choices actually are in a way very well linked together. So my second choice is Rabbit Test by Uncanny Magazine, and you might be able to guess what it's about from the title. It is essentially, again, about a sort of future dystopia, but it's about one with control of women's reproduction. Um, so the framing story is kind of a, a girl, Grace, who's under 18 and it's 2091. And there's basically an app that is going to automatically administer pregnancy tests on women in a world where, you know, abortion is is not allowed. And the, the rabbit test of the title is because that's historically how um, pregnancy tests were done before we invented the lateral flow test. It's Grace's story, but with interjections from the past of abortion and reproductive justice and, and activism. Yeah, I think it is quite, like, it's definitely got a message and it's quite firm in its message, but I think it's one that feels pretty timely and I did enjoy the story enough to include it. I really enjoyed the setup and I really enjoyed the the beginning of the story, but it was, um, in, in contrast to your previous bit where you said the ending really landed, I thought this was a story that just sort of stopped and that is why I, I haven't got it on my list to nominate. But it has also been nominated for a Nebula, so it clearly struck chords with a variety of, of people. Yeah, I think it feels like that story that comes along at precisely the right time to land with people. Mm. My next pick is Family Cooking by Anna Maria Curtis. Um, if I had to, like, I think if it wasn't Transference, it was my favourite, it would be this one. Because this one is also just... Oh, it's so good. It's about someone who is magic and their magic lets them make great food. But at the beginning of the story, they can no longer make great food. And the story is kind of about why that is. And it's about family and about emotion and about whether or not your emotions are something you can live with. It's just very, very good. And I really liked it it made me it and it really resonated with me uh for personal reasons as well so um so yeah i i just i i adored this story do you have magical powers for making great food john no so my my third pick relatedly and actually probably my favorite of the three i've got at the moment is again from lightspeed it's called the crisper cookbook a guide to biohacking your own abortion in a post-row world and it is exactly that basically it's supposedly a manual for like how you are going to biohack yourselves to perform an abortion in the future where it is illegal. I just thought it was very kind of solidly written. It's written as though it's like a, you know, a bit like a scientific manual, which as far as I can tell is also kind of completely, <laughs> completely accurate as far as it goes. And it's pretty short and kind of doesn't outstay its welcome and ends the kind of this note of like, okay, so if we, we're going to biohack ourselves to do this, what else are we going to biohack ourselves to do? And so I really enjoyed it. And it is by a, a pseudonymous author whose name, I think, is like the start of the CRISPR enzyme protein sequence, which is pretty neat. Uh, and I also 
Um, I very much like the... So Lightspeed has like uh, pages for all the authors that have written fiction for the magazine, and I very much like the author page for the author who wrote this. I've linked it uh, in the show notes. Uh, I won't say it here, but it's very good. My last one is Lily the Immortal, which is the longest of the four I'm nominating. And I think... I've inadvertently, guys, I've picked four stories about feelings. What? Which is just... I know, none of them are about lasers, Liz. It's almost like you have feelings, John. But this one's very good and is about grief in the wake of losing a friend and about how technology might help or hinder that process. And I really liked it. It kind of feels like it's dealing with some of the same themes as Westworld Season 3, but I think it does more with them in in, in 6,000 words. uh, Westworld Season 3 did over the course of 10 hours. So there is that. On to novelettes. So full full disclosure, my picks for novelette are... I mean, I think I like all three of them very much, and I haven't kind of tried to find five to nominate because I have definitely, like, thresholded at kind of ones I think are worthy. But, like, it is definitely true I have read fewer novelettes than short stories. So I think the short stories I've picked out are probably a little bit stronger than the novelettes. But, you know, your mileage may vary. Do you want to go first Liz? I can go first so I will say also that I've read many fewer novelettes than short stories when I was going through kind of things recommended from online venues they were really heavily slanted towards short stories and I mean I read a few novelettes I just didn't think were worth nominating and then there's kind of this extra uh, investment of time in the novelettes which means I'm, I'm kind of less likely to take a, a chance on like a novelette or even a novella by someone I haven't had recommended which is a long way of saying that what I did do was I read a bunch of um, short fiction that was put together by Amazon in one of their kind of free collections. And I'm going to nominate three items from that. And I think these ones are novelettes, but I'm guessing because I don't actually know how long they are. Anyway, so the first one is The Six Deaths of the Saint by Alex Harrow, which is about a woman in a sort of quasi-medieval fantasy world who becomes the kingdom's greatest warrior. And it turns out she is basically endlessly repeating her own story and dying and then getting slightly further all in the service of making a man like the 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 emperor of the world and then how she takes that back into her own hands and i enjoyed it and then there's what the dead know by Nghi Vo, which is from the same collection but kind of a totally different feel i thought this one had a very sort of eerie feel to it it's about a woman who is posing as kind of a spirit medium who can channel the voice of the dead in a world where that you like the dead do actually exist and, and rise as ghosts. And it's all about how they go off to one place to kind of channel the voices of the dead and end up meeting a ghost there. And I think it's just this one I just felt was really kind of well-written and really well-characterised in a short time. So that is mine. I'm also going to nominate uh, one of John's as well, but I'll let him talk about that. I'm going to pick Your Eyes, My Beacon, being an account of several misadventures and how I found my way home by C.L. Clark. This is about... A lighthouse keeper and someone they meet, and they're both quite lonely. It's quite good. It also has some genre elements, but you you know they're good too. I like this one uh, quite a lot, and I thought it was I don't know I it, I don't know why it just spoke to me, and it was nice. I'm gonna pick Two Hands Wrapped in Gold by S. B. Divya. This is a story about a young girl who has a magic power and 
it doesn't necessarily go as well as you would ideally like, although it kind of does. I'm good at synopsizing short stories. Very carefully worded to avoid any spoilers there, John. Well done. (laughs) And then is my favourite novelette, and I believe Liz is also planning to nominate this one, which is If You Find Yourself Speaking to God, Address God with the Informal You by John Chu. Uh, This, I believe, also got nominated for a Nebula. I just loved it. I I thought it was great. It basically, like, I guess you find God in the least likely places, and this story is an example uh, of that. But yeah, and just very human and very, very low key, but also very big. Um, I liked the juxtaposition of scales. And then it's on to novellas. I've got one novella, which is Radcliffe Hall by Miyuki Jane Pinkard in Uncanny 48. I quite liked it. I'm more nominating it because it's the novella I read rather than because I think it was like amazing, but I did really enjoy it. It's got, you know, it's kind of a sapphic creepy almost lovecraftian story set in an old boarding school so like it's hitting a lot of the things i like in fiction all in one story uh and so i don't know you know it might not be high art but i liked it quite a lot all right so i'm nominating two novellas at least i think so because i don't know if undercover by tamsin muir is a novella or a novelette this is partly because it came from this amazon collection where i just get page counts but anyway it is the only thing of tamsin muir's i've read that isn't you know gideon the ninth which he's obviously come to fame for but this i really liked it's about kind of you know a newcomer in she comes into town where there's you know the the gang leader who runs a burlesque show but kind of one of her star burlesque dancers is a ghoul and this newcomer who comes into town is basically an undercover cop who is trying to track down and get rid of these ghouls before they start eating everyone and yeah it's it's just it's good it's i like all the kind of you know it's very evocative when you go and see this ghoul she seems very kind of non-human and human it's sort of got this like saloon kind of feeling they're in the burlesque show they've got the saloon i don't know it just it just feels like a very different setting in which to put this when you could have just put it in kind of like a city somewhere where she was hunting ghouls she's put a lot of effort into the setting as well so i really like that one my last novella pick is The Two Dr. Skorsky by Isaac Fellman, which is from Tor.com. It's one of their standalone novellas. And this is, I believe it's what the kids call Dark Academia. It's about a graduate student who essentially is forced to leave her academic position and become a student in a different institution under an infamous magician who is known for well, he's, he's mostly known for having created a homunculus of himself when younger, which is something that we just need to do in this universe that kind of splits you into two parts and takes part of your personality with you. And it's really all about um, the student's kind of connection with both of these split parts of this personality. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. We're out of the short fiction minds, readers, so Alison can come back. And then novel. I mean, my novel picks are quite, quite straightforward. I already mentioned. Robert Jackson Bennett's Locklands trilogy, uh, and I'm going to nominate Locklands, the third book in that series. I don't expect it to be on the ballot because the third book in a trilogy very rarely makes it onto the ballot if the first two didn't, but it's really good and I really enjoyed it. I cried on a plane reading this book and I've also had it as pick, so yeah, you should go and watch them. Read them. Makes sense. 
I was sent a copy of Sea of Tranquility by Emily Sintron Mantle by um, Roy Kettle, who really liked it and recommended it, but said, oh, I have passed the point in my life where I keep all my books. And so I got that in the post and read it just the other couple of days. If we'd just been doing a normal Octothorpe, it could have been a pick. And I thought it was very good indeed. I like novels that feel like proper novels. So I like novels that are sparse and elegant and do what they need to do and do not contain anything extraneous. And I like it even better when they are genre, which this one is. And it is a lovely novel about time travel and the nature of reality. And the and it's got historical bits and current day bits and future bits. And it's just fantastic. And I strongly recommend it to everyone. And it's also very short, so it will not cause you to give up a fortnight of your life getting it read it's fine it's an easy read for an afternoon strongly recommended definitely going on my ballot thank you claire briarley of croydon for the recommendation yes so i believe this is eligible and i think abigail nisbaum said that um she was nominating it um but then when i checked my goodreads it said it was published in 2020 but i think it was published in finnish in 2020 and it was published in english in 2022 which is why it is eligible and it is the moon day letters by emmy Itaranta. This is something Neil Harrison and Nick Clark bought me for my birthday. I talked about it in a previous Octothorpe. I really liked it. It is worth noting, Espana, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, bounced off it because she was like, I find this book very difficult because of how utterly stupid the main character is. And I was like, I can see that reading. I think we're supposed to, I think Itaranta is supposed to, is trying to bring us to conclusions about what is going on before the main character gets there and i quite liked that sense of dramatic tension i think Espana found it absolutely infuriating that the main character wasn't also reaching the same conclusions because they were blindingly obvious and i can i can see how that could have been frustrating if you weren't uh if you weren't enjoying that part of the ride but yes i did like it and i will be nominating it are you back to me i am going to possibly steal one off john here because i am going for the spear cut through water by simon jimenez which is his second novel it's a fantasy novel about essentially two young men going on a a quest to save the moon and reset the world they are living in but it's also got these kind of layers of framing stories from people who are in the same world but later which is not our world but feels adjacent to our world and what they see in dreams and the show they see in a kind of stage show they see in dreams that frames it also it it kind of takes what might be a a fairly straightforward secondary world kind of interesting fantasy quest and makes it so much better by having all these extra intricate layers on top and weaving them all together throughout and it, it was quite a quite a tricky read it's quite a long book as well i think maybe a little bit longer than it needs to be but i feel it does bring all these threads together very neatly at the end and i really enjoyed it i will also be nominating uh city of last chances by adrian Tchaikovsky, uh which is a stone cold masterpiece it's just so good because it's got like two full pages of dramatis personae at the beginning and reading that i was a bit like oh god this is going to be one of those fantasy novels where there are a million characters and i have to keep referring back but the way tchaikovsky threads the plot through the characters and through the settings means that although you go all over this incredibly intricate city and although you have all of these different characters and although the world feels incredibly big and incredibly real you never feel lost within it he is so good at bridging 
between characters and settings in a way that means you always feel grounded and you always know where you are. And it is just, it was just so good. It's not quite like anything else I've ever read. And it was amazing. And I will be enthusiastically nominating it. I am super looking forward to this one. Oh, and um, one that Tragovsky also read, which I'll nominate for a laugh, but I don't think will be on the ballot, is Day of Ascension, which is the Warhammer 40,000 book he wrote about gene stealers. I suspect most of the Hugo Electorate have not read it, but uh, oh boy, it's a fun read. Yeah, I think of Tchaikovsky's five 2022 novels, that's probably at the bottom of, you know, how many people are likely to nominate it. I believe there are only four, Liz. Only four? Oh, sorry. Okay. I think so. <laughs> well, get on and write a fifth so we can have the old Tchaikovsky shortlist, please. I, I just want to say one quick word, which is that there is a novel, Babel, by R.F. Quang that is incredibly polarising amongst my friends list. I have loads of people saying it's the best thing they read last year and loads of people saying, eh, it's not that much. So I just think if you're interested in books that polarise people, that might be one to read in the next eight days. It's going to be on the shortlist anyway, so... It's going to be on the shortlist anyway, but also it's really long. And so if you're going to read one book in the next eight days, maybe don't pick one of the longest options you could possibly pick. I'd, I'd pick a shorter one you've got a better chance of finishing. Read all of our short fiction picks first yes yes that is my plan all right now we're done john and we don't get to do best game till next year no i'm gonna play lots of games in 2023 yeah that was the octothor podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me We're not doing picks this episode because we're doing a special Hugo nominations all the time episode. Um, and then we're going to do another episode about all the other stuff that's happened. But we do have to tell you about what would have been my pick if we were doing picks, which is the EasterCon catch up. So if you're a member of the EasterCon, then you probably do know that almost every program item we did is available to watch for another couple of weeks at the point that we're recording. But, um, it will probably it may well have gone down by the time we record again so we're telling you to watch it now it's great for just watching you can put it on your telly and you can watch it you can listen to program items while you're doing other things i have now seen more eastercon program than at any eastercon for decades um because i've picked it all up on catch up and i've seen about seven or eight items now and it's been absolutely great really loving it, it it's interesting that the program item i have enjoyed most so far has been a purely fandom based one where it was at some point in the panel somebody from the audience explained that it was more a comment than a question sort of a panel and indeed these are the program items I've always liked I don't think they should be on at 10 30 in the morning I think they should be on later in the day and I wish we had a lot more of that sort of thing and a lot less of boring panels and I have to say I've seen a couple of those too I've also seen a couple where what was described by Carrie and Moose as every panel has to have one elderly white man who doesn't know very much about the topic pontificating. And I've seen a couple of those. So if you're that bad, stop volunteering for programme. And if you're the programme people, stop putting up all those programme items. I mean, that's a separate conversation as to how you do that. So we'll save that for another time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
Anyway, what good what good catch up have you seen of the Eastercon that I I was so involved in creating and and have been working on for two years with this catch up in mind as one of the things we were going to do? Well, I haven't watched any of it. Um, I'm very bad at watching stuff on catch up because like, well, there's a bunch of other stuff I could be doing now. I'm home from Eastercon, so. But you do go to the program at the convention when I'm in the bar with my friends because I go. I can watch catch up any time, but I can only be in the bar with my friends right now. Whereas I enjoy watching program, you know, I enjoy watching program at the time, but I think I don't enjoy it quite as much when I'm home and there's a bunch of other stuff I've been catching up on. So um, My favourite program item is one of the ones about science fiction that Alison thinks should be uh, removed in favour of fandom items, which was Desert Island Books with Neil Harrison and Dan Hartland, uh, which was fascinating. Oh, you see, I'd have said that was a fan item can't just define them as fan items because you want to define them as fan no, items it's a fan item. yeah. yeah no it's a fan item because it's actually a bio- biographical um item about a fan told through the medium of favorite books i uh, see i disagree with that because i would argue that most of the things neil was on highlighted his critic side not his fan side and certainly, I enjoyed the third row panel to which you ref- referred earlier. Uh, I was on it, but I did have fun being on it. Um, but Desert Island Books was really fascinating as an examination of why Neil does his criticism, how he does it, and how his experiences have shaped that. It was an extremely good guest of honour item. And it's a little bit of shame that they had some technical difficulties because it was very early in the con. But it is great. I really recommend that. Very, very good item. Yes. The one I'm most looking forward to watching that I haven't yet got to uh, is the one about overshoots, um, which I have not seen yet, but I am looking forward to watching. So I did really like a straight scientific talk. This is one of the hybrid things that you can do, um, which is Dana Staff's The Lady and the Octopus. Um, One of the great things about hybrid conventions is that you can bring in experts from all over the world and have them do their thing on zoom and then into the thing and get but nevertheless get interaction from the audience and from discord and that talk was fantastic i'm sure there are other fantastic scientific talks but i really really like that one um and would recommend it too it was about jean vieux power who invented the modern aquarium oh interesting so fantastic talk and also a shameless plug, uh, I did an interview with Adrian Tchaikovsky and I had a whale of a time and uh, I think everyone should go and watch it because he's just great. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.